This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. So we've been talking for the last two or three years a lot about interest rates and specifically interest rates as it relates to mortgages. Um, now, we've seen kind of the peak of interest rates and hopefully in the near future start to see those rates go down. This week, I am joined by a good friend of mine, Pat McCormick from McCormick Mortgage Services here in Eldersburg, Maryland, to talk a little bit about that. What should we expect for rates? Is it still a decent time to buy a house? If you are, what should you be looking at? And what does he expect for the future of rates? So that's exactly what we're going to talk about this week. Before we get into that and talk to Pat, I want to have a quick shout out and thank you to our loyal listeners. As always, please share this with friends if you think it might be helpful. And also, we would not be here without our dedicated sponsors, Napatrax and Promotive. Hey, did you know that Napatrax is on-site training plus six days a week support? It all starts when a local representative meets with you to learn about your business and how you run it. After all, it's your shop, so it's your choice. Let us prove to you that Trax is the single best shop management system in the business. Visit them online at napatrax.com. That's N-A-P-A-T-R-A-C-S dot com. Great news. You now have a hiring partner to help you with the heavy lifting of hiring your next superstar. Introducing Promotive a full-service staffing solution for your auto repair shop. Visit them online at gopromotive.com. just want to welcome in Pat McCormick here of McCormick Mortgage Services. Good friend of mine, but also obviously in the mortgage business. And what better person to talk about? We were just talking about this before, how messed up the rates are and stuff like that. And what is the prospectus for the future? Is this going to get any better? Is it going to get worse before it gets better? And yeah, thanks for coming on here, Pat. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to kind of get into fun world of mortgages. I didn't realize that there are podcasts for things other than cold plunges and intermittent fasting. We so this talked about be this before, and like this is one thing that literally affects everyone is the interest rates, and everyone knows what's been going on with the interest rates, and depend on who you talk to, what's going to go into house prices. But what do you see? I mean, what are you hearing from people in the know? What are you seeing on home sales? Are people still buying houses, or are you seeing a bunch of people just sitting on this, not wanting to get rid of their mortgages or what? There's a lot of people on the sidelines like kind of keeping an eye on things that want to buy, that need to buy. From springtime of 22 to now, we've seen a significant increase in rates. I think we're through the worst of it and we're already starting to see, you know, rates improve a little bit. Fed's announcement yesterday of not lowering rates is as expected. People were expecting them to announce that, but for them to say, you know, we're not going to increase anymore. The bond market responded positively to that. So we saw a little bit of a rate dip, you know, yesterday afternoon into today. So I think we're staring down the barrel of good things to come. I think it'll be a, a better spring and summer buying season compared to the last couple of years. Fingers crossed. Yeah. And so when the rates come down, because a lot of people are like, when they started increasing rates, the mortgage rates went up much faster than even the Fed was raising their rates because they're pricing in the future. Now, on the same flip side of this, you know, usually when they start raising rates, it's a series when they start lowering it, you know, that's a series as well, too. How quick would you expect rates to start falling? If a lot of people think April is when they're going to start cutting rates, you know, if they cut at 25 basis, points, are we going to see a massive jump in this because they're like, the end is in sight and we're going to be able to price this in or no? Yeah, I think a lot of the Federal Reserve adjusting their rates isn't directly correlated to mortgage interest rates. A lot of the rate adjustments we see in the mortgage world are in anticipation of things to come. 
So if the Fed comes out, you know, next month and lowers rates, which people are kind of on the fence thinking of they will or they'll keep them the same. A lot of the adjustments we see day to day with interest rates on the mortgage side are kind of baking that into the pie of what's to come for the next couple quarters. So lowers rates a couple of times this year, probably more, probably a delayed control decrease on the mortgage side of things because a lot of what's to come has already been accounted for moving forward. So I wouldn't anticipate, you know, drastic drops each month or each quarter where the Fed comes out and makes an announcement, I think it'll be more of a gradual adjustment to what the new normal will be, which hope, hopefully, you know, in the fives, I think is going to light a fire under under things in the mortgage world just to get out of the seven, eight percent, even six percent range is going to be beneficial for a lot of people. Yeah. And I think that you're also probably right. Like you hit the nail on the head there of like what people are looking for this to go to, right? Well, when is it going to get back down to 2.75? It's like it probably never will and arguably never should be. Part of the whole issue why we have this other swing is it was that lower. Let's hope that it doesn't get back to the twos um, in the event that that would happen. I mean, it caused a global pandemic to get there in the first place. So I think a healthy place for the market to be is you know, in that four to five percent range, how long it takes to get there consistently, I don't know. But I think where we are now has had an unintentionally adverse effect to the housing market. I think we were talking about earlier, people that have bought a house or refied in the last handful of years probably have a rate in the threes. And now at this point where they were, they're looking to either upsize or downsize or move to a new area. They don't want to give up that three percent rate for you know, a more expensive house for a rate in the sevens, that swing in payment is insane. But if we get down into the fives, that's more digestible for people. Like, All right, well, it's a higher rate, but it's comfortable enough where we can make this transition from our retirement home or from our starter home to our forever home or what have you. That that switch from three to five, I think, is easier for people to accept than going something seven and a half from a three and a half percent rate. So I think once that settles down, That'll help with our inventory issue. Like I mentioned, there's a lot of pent up demand. So there's people that want to buy. There's a lot of people that are going to sell that just aren't interested in handling that or dealing with that just yet. Pat is based out of Maryland, just like I am. So if you're local, reach out to Pat and he can help you get a mortgage. If you're in Florida and California, reach out to your local Pat. We're licensed in Florida too. Maryland or Florida, Pat's your man. And you know what? If you're on the waterfront, he will be at the closing. I promise you. Yeah, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Florida. There you go. Now, one of the things here that I think is probably battling with people, and I've heard this from a lot of people, is like just the mental aspect of like no one has ever upgraded their houses, downgraded and stuff like that, and had to factor anything in here other than just what does the house cost. But honestly, the driver of your payment virtually has very little to do with the house price. If you look at what a $50,000 difference is amortized over 30 years, it's a spit in a bucket. Now you want to add one or two percentage points, it's massive. Do you think some of this is just people, this is what it's going to be. I just have to accept that that time has came and went. If I need to move, my rate's going to be higher and I just need to suck it up. Yeah, I think the for most of 2022, that was the case. People were just in kind of sticker shock of what the new reality is. And I think now that I think we've hit the high water mark in terms of rates and we're starting to calm down a little bit, people are starting to realize and understand that like, okay, as long as it's a house that, you know, we love, the payment is relatively comfortable. I can buy now and always refinance down the road once rates go down. I mean, the average homeowner refis within three years 
or moves within seven. So you're not going to have over eight in the sixes or sevens for 30 years. You're going to refire move at least once within the first 10 years. Quit thinking of this as such a long-term thing, right? Because everyone's like, I'm signing this up for 30 years. And what you're saying is, if you looked at people that wrote it out for 30 years, it's probably single-digit percentages. Realistically, most people are in that for seven years and they are selling that or write it for a couple of years and refinance it with the rates go down. And there's a number of reasons why you would want to refinance too. Like if you can tap into your equity, whether it be for a, a home equity line of credit, a cash out refi, if you need to you know, do some work around the house or pay for kids college or something. So it's not always just lowering your rate and go from, if you've been in a 30 year mortgage for 10 years, knock down that balance a little bit. Sometimes it makes sense to refi to a 15 year just to get that lower rate and a quicker payoff schedule. So to have someone that's paying, you know, the same rate that they started with for for more than seven to ten years, be surprised if it was over single digit percentage, like you said. Yeah, you know, most people are just kind of moving on to the next one. And also, you know, if you look at the history of it, we see rates swinging all the time. You know, people are always trying to time it of buy it high and and refinance it low. And if you get a crystal ball, it makes it super easy on it. Now, one of the things that doesn't get talked about a lot, but it is probably part of this economy is as rates are going up, generally a lot of home repairs, improvements, additions, stuff like that are funded by equity and cash out refis and stuff like that. Have you seen that significantly drop? Because yeah, it might have a ton of equity in my house, but it's kind of going to stink to refinance this, get some cash out to do a pool. And now my interest rate is four points higher than what it was before. Yeah, I've had a number of past clients and new clients that have reached out over the past couple of years to look into what it looks like to tap into that equity. And you know, I'll tell them too, like depending on how much you're trying to pull out, is it worth losing that 3% rate cash out refi to something in the sixes or sevens? Like there might be better options to tap into that equity than just a, a full refi to pull it out. So you yeah, haven't, there's been a lot of refis going on just because of that, you know, whether it's lowering rates or cash out or, or what it just right now typically doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so what would you like for something like that? You're like, go look at conventional bank loan or personal loan or something like that. Because what you're saying is like, you're trying to refi to pull out this 50 grand, but in turn, refinancing half a million dollars at a significantly higher rate, or it might not like the idea of this, but personal loan at 10% for 50 grand might still be cheaper than refinancing your whole mortgage. Yeah. Or like a line of like home equity line of credit, you know, the rates are going to be higher for that. It's a variable rate can adjust each month. There's different terms that are applied to that, but at least at that point you're keeping your first loan, your first lien in place at that low rate. And you can work at paying down that adjustable line of credit over time and eventually not pay tens of thousands of dollars to take out 20 or 30,000. You can save money that way in the long run by keeping that low rate for your, your first lien. Yeah, I'd also be curious too. I mean, depending on how big this is and how much you're trying to refinance it, there has to be some people where it's like, you qualified for the house that you're in right now, but I'm not even sure. Have you ever seen one where it's like, I can't refinance you because you qualify at 3%, but we take this cash out and we refi you at 7% at a higher amount. You can't even technically qualify for this mortgage anymore. Yeah. I mean, the, the rates have that big of an effect on your payment for sure. I mean, are we seeing people, I mean, if the rates are doubling, is that doubling people's payments pretty much? Not necessarily. It, it can depend, but you're looking at just loan amount. So every $1,000 of your loan amount is about 5 to $6 a month in payment. If you add a, a half a percent to that, depending on the loan amount, overshadows that increase in value significantly and decreases or increases your buying power, whether the rates are up or down by a quarter percent or half percent. 
not only is this just in the primary market, right? This is anything residential and even, you know, kind of the second home investment property side has been significantly slowed down by, you know, we won't get politics into it, but it's under this administration that they've done it. Do they still doing this where they're adding essentially a penalty point on top of this for second homes and investment to try and slow it down or have they stopped doing that? Yeah. And that started during COVID with when we had like the super low rates they were seeing in the, the market and the secondary market, people just buying up properties for investment purposes, whether it be short-term rentals or long-term tenants, second homes that are also listed on like Airbnb and that. So there is now a, a significant adjustment for second home and investment properties, which can be paid in points as a closing cost or rolled into the rate or a combination of the two. But you're looking at an investment property or second home, you're probably, you know, a full percent higher in rate compared to an owner-occupied mortgage. Yeah. And that's really kind of this whole thing in a nutshell, probably what happened here. It's like, if you look at it, people are going out and buying an investment home, 3%, something like that. I mean, look at what a high interest savings account is paying now. It's crazy. Your high interest savings account is going to be paying you more than what your interest rate on your mortgage is charging you. And it's almost would be stupid to go and pay off the mortgage. Now, given that and this kind of like rate disparity, do you think that that changes your advice on if someone should be doing a 30-year or doing a 15? Is there not as much of a premium right now because these rates are so out of whack? Right now, there's not a huge difference between the two. And how I like to explain it to people is you, know, you do a 30-year mortgage, your payment's going to be lower than a 15-year. You know, Obviously, you're not paying it off as fast. But there's no prepayment penalty for these loans. So if, if you want to pay it off early, you have that option with a 30-year. I have some clients that they don't want anything higher than a 15-year. And it, it can affect qualifying just because of the payment. But we can also do 25-year, 20-term loan. But again, there's no prepayment penalty. So you can still do a 30-year. You have that lower minimum mortgage payment each month. But if you want to pay it off faster, whether it be, you know, an extra mortgage payment a year or you want, you know, your bi-monthly payments to pay it off faster, you can save interest that way as well. Yeah, because we haven't really seen as much of them over the last couple of years because the rates were too low or too high. Because like I believe in like kind of normal times, you might have been at 5% for a 30-year. And then if you did a 15, you not only would increase your monthly payment, but your interest rate would fall down because a better short-term outlook on interest rates, you might save a percentage point. But I was kind of curious because I've seen a couple of things on it. It's like, well, why are, would people sign up for a 15-year when you're maybe getting 6.85 versus a 30-year is at seven? Is that premium really worth you locking in a much higher payment? But what you're saying is, why don't you just go get that 30-year? You can still give the bank extra money. They are not going to be bad. You're not going to get penalized for doing so. So you all must have every aspect of a 15-year. But if things do get tight and, and you can't afford that, you can always fall back on that lower payment. Yeah. And it kind of two point to make on that, you're probably going to refi anyway within the next 12 to 18 months. So take the 30 year now, it's a more reasonable payment than once rates comes down. If you want to seriously look at a 15 year at that time, you're likely to have a rate that you'll be sticking with for longer than a handful of years versus just getting the 15 year now and then refiing to a 15 year later. And we've seen a similar thing with, with adjustable rate mortgages. I was about to ask you about that. I, I didn't know if we were allowed to talk about ARMS anymore because everyone has a bad taste from 2007, 2008. If you would have asked me probably like summer of 22, I was thinking ARMS are going to come back and be very popular. But I think kind of the, the secondary market in the mortgage world realized that this high rate environment isn't permanent. So the ARMS were never priced really any better than the long-term fixed programs were. You know, so people would ask me, oh, what about an adjustable rate? 
And it just didn't make any sense to recommend that to buyers because you're probably likely going to, everyone's anticipating buyers refining relatively soon. You're going to refi, but if not, like, why would you expose yourself to that risk of after five years or seven years, whatever the initial fixed rate term is to an adjustment that's higher than what your current payment is? Because you're essentially just like protecting yourself on one side, but leaving yourself really vulnerable on the other side, because you get a fixed rate on it, then probably in the next five years, you're going to want to refinance that anyways. The adjustable is fixed for five years. And then at the end of it, who knows what's going on in the way the world's going. You could be shocked and be in a 14% interest rate. And now you're in huge trouble. And so we, we never saw any reason or pricing to to justify recommending that or quoting adjustable rates to people. Even though people would ask because you'd think it would make sense. Rates are high. Like what are adjustable rates? They ought to be better. But looking at them side by side, never got to that point. Because a lot of people like to equate some of this stuff to 2007, 2008, but obviously the end result looked nothing similar in a number of reasons. Now, some people have said that because adjustable rate mortgages have fallen out of fashion in the United States, it's still very big in the rest of the world and they're having some of their own issues. But I read something where like in 2007, 2008, the majority of people actually had adjustable rates versus now it is very uncommon to see it. Most people have fixed rates. Is that by design? Is that just how they're doing the rates is different than they used to or rules and all the above? Yeah, I think most of it has to do with the rules. Now, like there are very strict guidelines and requirements for to show the ability to repay. You need the, a two-year work history. We're looking at pay stubs, W-2s, tax returns if applicable, ensuring that people are qualified, their payment can't be over a certain percentage of their gross income. So people that are getting these loans now, even though rates are high, they can afford them, which was not the case back in 07 and 08. They're doing the no-doc loans. Ninja, right? No income, no job. Yeah. We got you covered. Yeah. The Big Short. Is that the, the movie? Yeah. I mean, that's not how it is now. The amount of, lack of a better term, background checks that's done on, on borrowers, like they're fully underwritten, proof of funds, income, everything is completely different than how I'm told it was going on back in 07 and 08, which I, I was not in the business then. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, do not blame me. That wasn't me writing those. Even though those commission checks were probably decent. Oh, you got a heartbeat, you got a mortgage on it. Yeah, it's kind of funny. You're probably right. Everyone likes to blame these interest rates and all this stuff and the housing market really crashed. It's, well, the person that was in that house probably couldn't have afforded it anyways and didn't give any documentation. So when they handed it back, of course, the mortgage lender is going to say, well, you know, it must have been the rates. We gave this knucklehead that died 10 years ago, according to the IRS, a mortgage. And shockingly, he didn't pay us and probably still lives in the house now. Who knows? Yeah. And the other thing too is like the banks, me, any lender, like we don't make more money just because rates are at six versus two. Like it's all a margin game. So it's, believe me, I, I want the rates to come down as much as anybody. Just, it was very difficult to swallow that pill of sending someone an estimate for an interest rate at seven and a half paying a point. You know, no one likes to have that conversation. Yeah. It's not like that you're making the spread on it, right? Not like you're like, oh, I'm still paying 3% and I'm charging you guys. It's like, no, no one is happy on this one. Yeah. No one likes it. No one likes those conversations. Napatrax has made selecting the right shop management system easy by offering the industry's best, most comprehensive SMS. It all starts when a local representative meets with you to learn about your business and how you need to run it. After all, it's your shop, so it's your choice, and having a local representation is a huge plus. Customizing tracks to your business, whether you're a one-person shop or a large multi-bay or multi-location company, 
Our representative consults with you to help optimize your shop's workflow, efficiency, and profitability. And unlike the other guys, we'll be there for you after installation with the best training and support in the business with a learning management system tailored to each role in your company. Simply put, Trax was designed and built for shop owners just like you. Visit us on the web at napatrax.com. That's N-A-P-A-T-R-A-C-S dot com. Are you tired of spending endless hours searching for the perfect talent to join your team? Promotive is your full-service automotive staffing solution. At Promotive, we believe in being more than just a recruiting agency. We become an extension of your team working tirelessly to ensure we place the right talent with the right shops. With our always-be-recruiting mindset, we're constantly seeking out the best professionals in the industry. We manage 90-95% to of the recruiting process, taking the burden off your shoulders. When you partner with Promotive, you gain a dedicated recruiter and account manager who will work closely with you, understanding your unique requirements and seeking out candidates who fit seamlessly into your shop's culture. We'll ensure that every candidate we present is thoroughly vetted and aligned with your needs. With Promotive, you'll have a peace of mind knowing that we're handling the recruitment process with expertise and precision. We don't just match resumes, we match character, culture, and long-term success. Visit our website at gopromotive.com today and experience the power of Promotive's expertise and dedication. Together, we'll build a stronger and more successful team. Now, have you seen the lenders and specifically the ones that you guys are work with to you know sell these loans and stuff are they getting stricter or are they getting less strict because they have more to make off of this like you said it's all relative because yeah their borrowing rates are higher so it's really not any easier or harder for them the underwriting guidelines haven't changed they're all the same if anything the wholesalers we work so we're, i'm a broker so i work with a handful of wholesale investors so i get wholesale pricing on rates if anything, they've been coming up with creative ways to incentivize buyers and help affordability, whether it be from 1% down programs with a grant, incentivize pricing if you use certain tools with them. If you're under 80% of the AMI, you know you get a, a discounted rate if you're a first-time home buyer. So while the guidelines are staying the same, affordability is down because rates are up. If anything, these wholesalers are doing everything they can to kind of incentivize buying and home buyers to get back up in the market and, and, and keep things going. Because at, at the end of the day, if people aren't buying homes like these wholesalers, they're not making any money either. So while, you know, guidelines are the same, there's... They're only making money when their money's out on the street. Yeah. If anything, I mean, guidelines are the same. They're not stricter or, or looser by any means. But, you know, there's a lot of interesting programs out there for for helping first-time home buyers, especially kind of get up to bat and, and get into a house. Are you seeing major spreads between people with good credit, people with bad credit, or is it kind of an on and off switch? Like if your credit is this much, you're going to be fine. You're going to get a mortgage. If it's below that, you're just not going to get one. Or is there more of a range there? So most of our programs are minimum of 620 credit score, depending on where you are range wise within 620 to 800. We'll recommend some loan programs over others, depending on credit score. But we look at the other picture too. I mean, you could be a high income earner and just have ding credit and you have a lot of assets and if you have enough to put down that can kind of cancel out the the rate adjustments for score i mean you could have a a medium score and not a lot in the bank and there's a loan program for that too so you got to have some good with the bad like you can come in with a crap credit score but if you make a bunch of money and have some assets it's might be not the end of the day but bad score no money no income yeah you're probably not going to get a mortgage huh 
I mean, you could have a 620 score, make a decent income. And there, you know, there's a program you put three and a half percent down and get in a house for a you know, very reasonable rate. So as long as we fit into these certain buckets that we're required to, to go by, we're happy to help anybody. Did you hear that? If you have a 620 credit score, Pat has guaranteed you that he is going to get you into a house or your money back. Yeah, I didn't say that. <laughs> well, when I clip it up, it's going to sound exactly like that. <laughs> no, I mean, that's awesome. And I guess going back, most of the people that are listening to this are going to be self-employed on it. And I know that your favorite types of mortgages that you do are people that are self-employed on it. What is like if you're giving someone some heads up on being self-employed and they've maybe this is their first time ever getting a mortgage where they don't have a paycheck on it, what would you kind of give out is like, here are the big do's that make my life easier and in turn probably getting a mortgage easier. And what are the big don'ts or the ones that you just groan when you see come across? Self-employed, probably the biggest thing is if you're self-employed for five years or more, I only need one year of tax returns which can be very beneficial if you're thinking about buying a house and say, you know, last year you had a lot of write-offs, you didn't show a lot of income, but you know, next year you're going to want to buy a house. Maybe don't write off as much as much of a cost, show a little bit more income to help with qualifying. We can add back depreciation into usable income. So that's something that is beneficial too. You know, if, if you're the, the sole proprietor, we can use company funds for, for purchasing a house. But probably the biggest thing is is shown income and you know what you make on paper versus what month to month the income is is a very different number from what we look at. I always joke with my self-employed borrowers that you know being self-employed is the greatest thing in the world until you go to buy a house. Oh yeah, because a lot of this stuff you're like, well, get your employer to initial this and we can do the loan. Like that stuff goes out the window and I've been through this before is your scrutiny is much, much higher because generally if they're going and one of Pat's employees is going to get a loan, they're like, all right, Pat, your boss has to go and sign off that you pay him this amount of money. It's not really that much of an accuracy check if you're signing your own thing of certifying that that is what you make. Now, kind of going down that same vein of self-employed on this brought up a really cool idea there because if you have less than five years, they need to last two years of your taxes, correct? And they, I believe, average those two or take the higher of the two. What do they do there? There's a decline and we average. But yeah, if there's two, then we look at what those two years look like. If it's the same, that's great. If it's increase, that's a positive. If it's too much of a change one way or the other, then we, we want to potentially look at your year-to-date P&L just to see what we're, how we're trending. Probably a big timing thing on that too, where you're looking at this and you're saying, if you're coming to me right now, you're going to be using 22 and 21 because you probably haven't done your 23 taxes yet. And so I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are on both sides of that, either like you better get this done before you file 23 because we know 23 stunk for you or better do this really quickly because we want to use these new numbers and be able to get you qualified here. It was interesting. During COVID, they made a lot of guideline overlays for self-employed borrowers would it made sense just with everything going on but there was a while there we needed to look at bank statements profit and loss within the month of closing just to ensure like the business was still cash flowing the same average as the last two years tax returns because depending where you are in the tax year i mean had a self-employed borrower now like it could be 15 months of unknown income documented that i'm using to qualify you or like what they were terrified is, is your business even around, right? Because there are so many people that were using tax returns of businesses that were either shut down on the purpose or we're not allowed to open because of the government. We saw so much. 
Yeah, for verifying businesses are active. Like if you have like like business license verification through a verified website to show that the business is still open, it's a lot less intrusive now than it was during COVID. They like to call the accountant. Like I remember there's one specifically. Letter from an accountant. Yep. Yeah. So we had one and it was, I think they were going through Wells Fargo or something like this, which, you know, shouldn't be surprised. Screw Wells Fargo. But I swear to God, they called us like 10 times on this. Can we verify this income? They're still here. Either do this mortgage or not, because I'm so sick of doing these letters to you guys on it. Yeah. And they ended up doing it. But I, I remember talking to one of the people there and they said just that. Do you know how many of these that we've done and even done multiple where it's, yeah, they're good. Yeah, they're good. This number is disconnected. And all these people were, you know, so afraid of getting burned, obviously. But now, one of the big things here that you talked about, though, is there is some stuff that you can add back. So if you go out and you make 100 grand, you buy a $100,000 truck on taxes, you made zero. Pat and the underwriters are going to look at this and be like, we see that you made money. There's depreciation. We add that back. Now, what if I'm hunt the business owner, maybe don't like paying taxes and I have a race car and whatever else that I like to run down through my business. Do you guys have any flexibility anymore to add back things that I'm leveraging for the tax benefit? Or could I be shooting myself in the foot? Because yeah, great. You made all that money. But because you run your personal life down through the business, there's nothing that we can do. Yeah. There's like very specific buckets that we can include to add into that that net income. If you tell me, oh, buy all my cars through my business and it shows up on my personal credit report, unless you can show me that like there's a history of payment, that auto payment from the business and it counts towards your your debt to them. So it, the waters get, get muddy fast sometimes, depending on how those taxes are filed. Sometimes it's easy. It's a slam dunk. Even if there's not a lot of claimed income, just with how the depreciation or if you pay yourself X amount of salary per year, we can can use that on top of the depreciation and, and net income as well. Yeah, but that's the big one because I always hear people. I hear them from the opposite side when they talk to you and come back and complain like, can you believe this knucklehead won't give me a loan? Like he knows I have all this. And I tried to explain this to people. If you are going to get a mortgage, you should not be talking to me or the mortgage person when you are 60 days out from the house. If everything is fine, if you know you make a bunch of money on it, then great. Risk it, go for it. But so much of this stuff, especially if you're thinking to yourself, man, this is a lot more bigger payment for me. I'm kind of concerned because this is going to be a lot more out of my pocket. Then you need to be looking at this stuff because, yeah, you might think you can afford it in practice of what you have in your bank account. But when Pat looks at this stuff, they have very strict rules of what they're allowed to use and not use. If it's on line six of this, you put that in. If it's not on line eight, you cannot put it in. This is kind of what we're talking about of back in 2007, 2008. The rules before that, they could have little intricacies. You guys could move stuff around. But from what I know right now, you guys are pretty locked down where it's, I know that we shouldn't be using this, but because of the guidelines, if it's on here, we have to use it or can't. It's very cut and dry for for these underwriting guidelines. Now, if you said like if you're you know under contract and didn't get pre-approved and looking to buy a house and get to the closing table, there's not a lot I can do to help. But if preemptive with it and say like I'm thinking about buying a house in the next two years, what do my tax returns look like now? What can I do for the next tax season to help my reported income to get to qualify for a certain price range? And I can work backwards and tell you like if you want to buy this price house, we need. X amount of income. Now, I can't tell you what to claim, what to write off, but I can give you an idea of what the income would look like. We can't do it on this podcast, right? Without approval. Yeah. (laughs) No, but seriously, it's like, and I try to explain this to people, like there's stylistic approaches. It's not that we're advocating tax fraud or anything like that, but there's five different ways to do something. And all of them probably are IRS legal state approved. But 
a lot of the ways that you report stuff, the way that you deduct it has completely different implications on the underwriting side. And that's why you talking to someone in planning. Yeah, they don't talk to each other. It's like I said before, like self being self-employed is the greatest thing in the world until you go buy a house <laughs> until you want to buy a house. Yeah. Or even a lot of people that realize like, you know what, I used to work for whoever. And now I went out and started my business. It's so like if you just went out and you started your business from scratch, how long before you can even use that income as like reportable income? Because you can't just start it, right? Yeah. You'd want to see a two-year work history for self-employed. As like a rule, rule of thumb. But it is funny though. I mean, you could be self-employed. You can pay 10 people a hundred grand a year for your work, but depending on how your taxes are filed, you might not be able to qualify for anything from what our rules are. Yeah. It's like, wait, I am able to figure out how to pay my employees, you know, $200,000 a month on payroll. And you guys are concerned that I can figure out how to pay you guys 2,500 for a house that my family's going to be living in. I think I might figure this out. Well, we always joke about that, even just small business lending in normal. It's like, it seems like small businesses is so hard to get credit when it's, these are the ones that don't generally fail. It's their sole source of income. It's their lifeblood. It's, you know, probably even a family business. What else do they have? Yeah. It's like the cornerstone of the community, but we're grilling them. <laughs> Versus, you know, the big corporations, whatever, let them come in there. Yeah. They might or might not claim bankruptcy, but the American dream. Well, Pat, I appreciate it. I appreciate you coming on here, enlightening me and my listeners on all of this stuff. If they are in the Maryland, Virginia, D.C. or Florida region, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? Give me a call. Shoot me an email. I'm on Instagram and Facebook, too. We're right local in, in Eldersburg, but again, licensed in all over Pennsylvania, the state of Maryland, Virginia, and Florida. Or if you're not in any of those states and just want to ask a question happy to do that as well yeah i appreciate it and like i said if you are in the area reach out to pat i mean this is the kind of stuff that you've got to be planning before you're thinking about it maybe you're sitting here thinking i got a three percent and i do want to move on it you need to be doing probably your research at least six months probably even more than that before with how much stuff is changing but thanks again get pre-approved I mean, there's no cost or obligation to get everything looked at by me and be a good idea of, of what to expect when you are ready to buy especially for your clients who are all self-employed get your tax returns looked at if you're curious or want to know if you need to do anything for for the next tax year or not or just want to know where you stand now again it's that there's no cost or obligation to get it looked at that's what we do so yeah and if you mentioned that you heard him on this podcast he's going to give you one percent off of your mortgage guaranteed so if you have a boat and want to take me fishing <laughs> that second one might actually work more than the first one right <laughs> awesome well thanks pat yeah all right man talk to you thanks for having me i hope you enjoyed that conversation with pat i know i learned a lot out of it if you are local to maryland virginia pennsylvania and florida and want to reach out to pat and learn more about how you can work with him and get your own mortgage uh, I have all of his contact information here in the show notes. As always, please share with friends. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a future episode, please shoot me an email at podcast at parmelis.com. Thanks again for listening on the Aftermarket Radio Network. You can find all shows on the aftermarketradionetwork.com and on your favorite podcast listing app. Thanks again for joining me on Business by the Numbers. Stay safe out there, and I'll talk to you all next week. You've been listening to Business by the Numbers with Hunt Demarest on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Hunt on your favorite podcast listening app. Let him know what you'd like him to cover. His email is in the show notes. Hunt is all for advancing the aftermarket.